dang it. There's a stupid period right after introduction. Now it's going to bother me. And all you OCD people, it's going to bother you. Use the mic. We can't hear you very well. That would be pretty cool. All right, guys. Does everybody have a study sheet? All right, let's go ahead and get started. So introduction. So as you can tell, Stephen is not here. Um, he is homesick right now, so if you guys could keep their family in your prayers. Um, they're kind of going through the ringer with the flu, vomiting, and all that fun stuff. So um, I know we were in the middle of walking with God, going through Joshua, um, and he let me know Friday um, you know, that there would be a possibility that I'd be teaching today. So I kind of went back to something that hit me back in Joshua chapter 5. Um, so we're going to still be in Joshua today, but for more of a devotional or practical application. Um, so introduction. So through our study in Joshua, we've seen the nation of Israel be part of some amazing victories. Something that's difficult as a believer today is believing that those same victories can and ultimately need to take place in our lives. I mean, isn't that true? We see the nation of Israel... The way they defeat some of their enemies, they don't even have to lift a finger. Some of them, they do unorthodox methods like the walls of Jericho, walking around. Um, And we read those and we believe them. It's history and we think they're cool and we see the power of God. But sometimes it can be hard to believe that that same power that gave them that victory is alive and well inside of us and can and actually needs to give us victories in our lives today. Sometimes it's hard to make that connection. It can seem unrelatable and unattainable leading to forfeit and defeat in our own personal lives. But there is something that the nation of Israel understood before any of these victories happened that granted them success. And in Joshua 1, 8, who knows that verse by heart? I'll memorize that in like first grade. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth. You hold it inside of you. And then at the end, when that book is inside of you, when it's indwelling inside of you and you know it, and it becomes close to you, it becomes everything that you need to live and survive, For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Okay, Joshua, their leader, understood that, and it was his job to try and convey that to the people. The people, the nation of Israel, had to become vulnerable before God. And that was something that Joshua saw in chapter 5. Go to Joshua chapter 5. So Joshua had a very close relationship with God. And he knew the importance of this, and that's why he conveys it to them in Joshua chapter 5. And I'll show you that. So point number one, as with really any message, but this one especially, we need to understand our purpose. So breaking our purpose down. So in other words, taking something complex, taking something messy... And bringing it down to its most sim- its simplest part, okay? Getting rid of all the noise, all the details, and fully understanding, okay, at its simplest point, what is our purpose on this world? All right, Joshua 5, verse 1. And it came to pass when all the kings of the Amorites, which were on the side of Jordan westward, and all the kings of the Canaanites, which were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of Jordan from before the children of Israel until we were passed over, that their heart melted neither was their spirit in them anymore because of the children of israel all right so what do we have going on here first off in chapter five has israel had any victories yet any big war victories since joshua has taken over 
No. What were they getting ready for? Jericho. Sometimes it can be confusing reading this because all the way back in chapter 2 is when they sent the spies into Jericho and you're thinking, okay, by chapter 5 they finally, you know, did their whole dance around it, down came the walls and, you know, bada bing. But they're still prepping. And in chapter 5 we see that everybody around them is fearful. Everybody around them sees the nation of Israel and their hearts melted. And why? Why does it say that in verse 1? What did they hear about the nation of Israel? Yeah, God dried up the Jordan. He made it so that they could walk along in as dry land. I mean, would that not terrify you? If we're, if we're over here as a nation and all of a sudden we hear that Iraq can have people teleporting around, <laughs> I, I'd, be hide, I'd be finding a place to hide and I wouldn't leave. I'd be terrified if they got some unbelievable technology that we couldn't even explain. I mean, that's the nation of Israel. If I heard that Iraq could, I don't know why I'm picking on Iraq, it just is. If they could dry up the ocean and walk on dry land over to the, over to the United States, it would be pretty terrifying. It'd be like, there's something special, there's something different about them. We see that the nation of Israel, they're the big dogs in the land. And I think of sports when I think that. All right, There's always a team that someone fears, like Buckeyes. You guys all catch the victory? Yeah. But seriously, though, there, there's a team, even before the season starts, there's teams that people do not want to face because they know their reputation. They know about them. They know that they have skill. They have grit. They're hard to go against. But it can be very easily to let that go. It can be very easy to let that go to your head, especially as the nation of Israel. Think about it. They have, all, they have kingdoms around them that are looking at them terrified. And we have to know who did that, who, who did the miracle, who brought the victory. Flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. When you think of Satan, all that glory and the pride went to his head and it ultimately destroyed him for all of eternity. Because he liked how it made him feel. Sports was a big one for me. When we'd have a big victory or I'd do something or the team would do something and we'd accomplish some things, I'd start to feel really good about myself. And I'd start to find my fulfillment in those sports. And I'd start to think highly of myself, forgetting who brought me there and for what purpose they brought me there. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 17. Very familiar verse, pretty short. But he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. So your first point, glory in God. We need to make sure that these victories that we have, that these successes that we have, that this salvation that we have, it causes us to glory in God. We can't ever forget who caused us to be here, who gave us this victory, who's the heartbeat behind why we're even here, who's giving us the grace to even allow us to wake up each morning. It's God. I got a cool story. How many of you guys, I don't know if I'm probably going to get yelled at, but... How many of you guys have seen the movie Gladiator? Phenomenal movie. There's a line in that movie that's based on true accounts from Roman generals, and I want to read this to you. So after every major military victory in ancient Rome, a triumph, as it was called, was celebrated in Rome. It was a ceremonial procession granted to victorious generals who drove in a chariot drawn by four horses. They would ride through the streets to the temple 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 of jupiter on the capitol hill to offer sacrifice in the temple 
When they reached the foot of the capital, some of the leading captives may have been taken off for execution. The ceremony usually started early in the morning and took up a whole day and sometimes even more than two days. Before the general entered the city at a specific point, the Porta Triumphalis, he would first give a speech praising his legion. The victorious general who drove throughout the streets of Rome in the chariot, decorated with gold and ivory, was followed by his troops and preceded by his most glamorous prisoners and spoils taken in war. I mean, could you imagine being that general and being triumphed through Rome? Being touted up, being celebrated, being praised by millions. I mean, this was the capital of the world at this point. The triumph for the victorious general offered extraordinary opportunities for self-publicity and therefore popularity with the people of Rome. The victorious general was seen as, in some way, divine, representing the god Jupiter. Paintings depicting certain episodes of the battle were used in the ceremony. There were also musicians as well as examples of the exotic plants and animals taken from the conquered country. The general was dressed in an elaborate red or purple toga and his face was painted red to imitate the red painted face of the statues of Mars, the god God of war or Jupiter, the king of gods. The red paint was made with vermilion and opaque orange red pigment derived from powdered mineral cinnabar. So imagine all this going on, all the theatrics, all the excitement, all the celebration. Be pretty easy for that general to get lost in that, to feel very highly about himself. And they're depicting him to look like what? A god. They're treating him like he's divine. But even the Romans knew something that we need to know spiritually. One of the most interesting parts of the triumph was that behind the victorious general in the chariot stood a slave, holding a golden crown over his head and whispering to him throughout the procession, remember you are a mortal, in the ears of the victorious general as they were paraded through the streets, reminding him that he is a man even when he is triumphing. You know, even when he was celebrated and all these people put him up as a god, they knew the dangers of him believing that he's a god. And they even tried to bring him back down to reality. There was somebody who walked behind him whispering in his ears, remember you're immortal. And we can do that spiritually. The nation of Israel did that all the time in the Old Testament. They get these victories and they forget that they're the mortals. They're the vessel that God is working through. You always need somebody in your ear whispering saying, remember who got you here. Remember God, remember who's the source of this power. Remember who's the source of this victory. Remember who to glory in. And it's, it might not be even spiritually in sports. A lot of you guys are involved in sports. But remember who gave you that ability. Remember who gave you that talent. Remember who gave you that opportunity. You know, and, and what this looks like for us in Revelation 2, 4, we're not going to turn there. But when we start to think too highly of ourselves, when we start putting ourselves up in the throne of our lives... It says that he condemns the church in Ephesus for one thing, and it's because thou hast left thy first love. That's what it end up, ends up looking like. We start getting these victories. We start getting these successes, spiritually or worldly. We start leaving Jesus in the dust. And just like those Roman generals, lost Roman generals need it brought down to reality, a lot of times we need brought down to reality. Every single day I need brought down to reality. And that's why we must always remember point B, the simplicity of why we're here. Flip over to Revelation chapter 4. Good job, Trent. Trent, you smart boy. 
the simplicity of why we're here. And that's why this first point is breaking our purpose down. It's taking all these theatrics, all the mess that we're surrounded in. I mean, is life not more confusing now than it was five years ago, ten years ago? I'd say 20, but I'm going to lose you guys a little bit. It gets more and more complicated. There's more and more stuff to do, to worry about, to try and make sure you have an order. And it's no coincidence. The busier you are, the more complicated you feel, and the more difficult it, be, it, it is to understand the simple reason of why we're here. Because it gets lost in the detail. I kind of hate the whiteboard being over there. Because I wanted to just draw like you know a, a red circle and then all this mess around it. And that red circle being our purpose, but we lose it. We get distracted. Because there's so many other things going on in our lives that we lose it. We forget it. Revelation 4 verse 11 says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. You know, that's what it all boils down to. You know, people, and people have asked me, why, why did God create us? And I get it. You know, I'll say, to bring God glory, to know God, to witness to other people, to disciple. Yes, all those things are true. But all those things are in an effort to bring pleasure to God. That's it. God created everything to bring him pleasure, to have a relationship with them. Everything we do ought to be in an effort to bring him pleasure. And we lose sight of that sometimes. We get lost in uh, the details. But when you break it down, when you take all the complexities of life and you break it down, that really, in a nutshell, is why we exist. It's to bring God pleasure. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Verse 7. So this would be way back, early context of why the nation of Israel was successful, why they could have any success, and why all the way in John, John, Joshua chapter 5, verse 1, that the nations feared them. Verse 7. For what nation is there so great? Who hath God so nigh unto them as the Lord our God is in all things that we, can, that we call upon him for? And what nation is there so great that hath statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law which I set before you this day? Only take heed to thyself and keep thy soul diligently, lest thou forget the things which thine eyes have seen, and lest, thy de- and lest, lest they depart from thy heart all the days of thy life. But teach them thy sons and thy sons' sons. So keep these things close. But verse 7 is our focus. They were a great nation because God was nigh unto them. God was very, very close to them. And you will only be great when God is nigh unto you. Yes, as a nation, they drifted from God. And that's why you see even after Joshua, we have the book of Judges and the cycles of sin. God's never the one that moves. It's always them that pulls away. But they were close because God was nigh unto them. And I'm not talking about reading your Bible. And I'm not talking about praying more. Again, those are good things, but sometimes we get lost in those. I'll never forget back 
at church camp when Pastor Mike Blake was sharing about, you know, reading your Bible. You know, how the nation of Israel would carry that ark around. What, what did he compare that to? What did he say that ark with how they were treating it? What did they view it as? Like a lucky charm. As long as we got the ark out here, there's nothing that can stop us. But their heart was rotten. It says their heart was far from me. Sometimes we can treat reading our Bible like that and even praying to where it just becomes some rote habit. And we do it thinking that, okay, if I get up and I read my Bible at least 15 minutes, I'm going to have a good day. Where is that in the Bible? You can read anything. You can listen to anything. If it doesn't make it down into your heart, if you're not actually communicating with the author of this book, you're better off not even reading it. I take that back. Read the Bible. There's still more value in reading it. But there's no relationship aspect. This Bible is not some lucky charm that you just wake up and you're like, all right, God, give me a good day. You rub it, you read it, and you have a good day. That's not how this works. It's about being nigh unto God. I think of praying without ceasing. It means that God is right there with you the whole time and you're, you're communicating with him. And you will not have a great life. You will not have a successful life if God is not nigh unto you. You know, it's like, so, again, talking about breaking it down to simple forms. It's like in Job 1, we're not going to turn there, in 22 verse 24. You guys remember the end of that chapter? So what happens in Job chapter 1? What happens to Job? He loses everything. I believe in chapter 1 he loses his family, his livestock, his house. Everything is taken from him. And you know what he says at the end? He rents everything. He gets down and he says, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. When everything was stripped away, that's what was left. And, and it says in all that, Job sinned not against the Lord. So put yourself in Job's shoes. If everything was stripped away from you, what would be left? Do those details, does that, all those things in your life, do they matter more? Or would you be able to make that same comment? Would you be able to have that same perspective? When everything is taken away from your life and you break your life down to its simplest point, what's left? That's something you got to be honest with yourself. I'll be honest. If my kids and my wife were taken away from me, I find a lot of identity in those in, the, in my family. I would like to think that I could say those same things, and I pray that God would give me the grace to, that would be darn near impossible. And that's one of the biggest thorns in my flesh is battling, putting my family above God in my mind. What is it for you? And there's other things I deal with. I'm not some righteous wolf. My biggest struggle is loving my family too much. It really is a struggle, but there, there's other things. What is it for you? Could you get rid of everything and still have that simple relationship with God? Recognizing that those things were really just distractions in you bringing pleasure to God. And this leads us to our second point. Breaking vulnerability in. Which again, my mind was like on sports when I was preparing this. So I think of, you know, breaking in a new glove. Who in here has played baseball or softball before? Or shoes, I guess. Who in here wears shoes, Noah? You know, when you get something new, what do you have to do with it? You got to break it in. You got to get used to it. 
It can be very, very uncomfortable. But you work it. You use it. And day after day, it becomes more normal, becomes more natural, becomes more comfortable. And it's the same thing with vulnerability with the Lord. And we're called to be completely vulnerable before God. Because, letter A, it's a relationship, not a religion. You know, and this is where God is a genius. Because he gives us social structures that mirror this. So if you want to be nigh to God, if you want to be close with God, you have to be completely vulnerable with him. You have to give everything to him. All right, so think about, you know, our relationship with God. It's a relationship, not a religion. He gives us relationships on this earth to help us understand what that looks like. So let's start out small. So if there's sin between you and a friend in school or in this youth ministry, is that not awkward? Think about it right now. Petey and Trevor, if he did something to tick you off and you couldn't let it go, would you be sitting next to him right now? What if that was the only open seat? <laughs> or it'd be pretty awkward though, wouldn't it? You'd be thinking about that differently. I mean, think about the people you're sitting next to. If there was a rift right now between you two, it'd be pretty awkward, wouldn't it? You'd walk in, you'd see that empty seat, you'd be like, oh yeah, there's still, that hasn't been dealt with. I don't want to have to, I don't want to talk about it. I, they, they owe me an apology. Whatever it is, it can be awkward between friends. All right, take it one step further. What if there's sin between you and a disciple or discipler? And you know you're going to be sitting down and meeting with them. And you know you got to talk with them about this. Or you've been pushing them off, pushing them off, pushing them off. It's going to be pretty awkward the next time you sit down. It's going to be pretty hard to open up. You're not going to want to. You'll fight it. All right, let's go up another level. Think about with your parents. If there's sin between you and your parents, last thing you want to do is talk to them. And I've been there. You come in the house, you want to get upstairs as fast as you can. I remember the days when my mom and dad would find something out, and I knew going home that the teacher had already called and told them what I did. And I'm like, oh, geez, I'm like, how do I avoid this? Thinking that, you know, I'm going to be able to avoid this for the next 12 years until I move out. But I'm thinking in my mind, I'm like, this is going to be so awkward. I don't want to talk about it, and I'm hyping everything up. I just want to get out of that situation. Now let's take it up one more step. Think about sin and issues in a marriage and how much that affects the fellowship. Greatest picture of our relationship with Jesus Christ is a marriage. And when sin enters into a marriage and it's not dealt with, think how awkward that is. You don't get away from that person. You have to deal with it. You know, and let's see this firsthand. Go over to Genesis chapter 1 and we're going to work through this with a marriage. So let's go back to the first marriage. Who was the first marriage in the Bible? There we go, Adam and Eve. And we'll see how pure their marriage was. And then the second sin came in. I want you to think of it from the perspective of being, being vulnerable. Okay? Genesis chapter 1. Verse 27 says, So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it. 
and had dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moved upon the earth. So he tells them to be fruitful and multiply. He tells them in a not inappropriate way to be intimate, to be together, to be as close as you possibly can as human beings. Does he not? All right, flip over to chapter 2. Again, be thinking about vulnerable. Verse 24. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. So that tells me a couple things. One, the, the way God views marriage is that you're supposed to be able to it you're supposed to be able to be as close to each other as possible and be not ashamed. But it also tells me that there was no sin in their marriage right here. Because think about it. And friends, I mean, we work through friends and disciples and parents. If there's any sin there, the last thing you want to do is talk to them. And in a marriage, if there's sin there, I can tell you this verse would say a little different. It would be completely different because look over in chapter 3, verse 7. So they were unashamed in chapter 2. And then verse 7, after they bit of the fruit... And the eyes of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. So sin entered into this marriage, and what's the first thing that happens? They put some clothes on. Seriously, they put some clothes on. You know what they do? They become ashamed in front of each other. They become embarrassed to be in front of each other. The second sin comes in, you start to feel that awkwardness because something's not dealt with. Obviously, they haven't talked through it. They haven't worked through it. But sin enters in. You know what it does? It ruins their intimacy. You know, Satan has always been in the business of destroying intimacy in marriage. Which leads to, letter B, Satan's focused attack, which is our intimacy. If Satan can pervert or eliminate the intimacy between a husband and wife, it's only a matter of time before that marriage crumbles. That's a fact. If Satan can get in and make it to where it's awkward for a husband and wife to be together, if they start not talking about certain things, if they stop dealing with certain things, the first thing it affects is their intimacy. And if that le- if, if that's left untreated, undealt with, it's only a matter of time before that marriage crumbles. And that's why Paul warns the Corinthians of protecting their in- intimacy in 1 Corinthians 7, 5 saying defraud not be as close as you can together why is why is paul so passionate about that why is the bible so passionate about marriage what's marriage a picture of jesus in the church so if a husband and wife are supposed to be as close as humanly possible and there's not supposed to be anything in between them satan's not supposed to get a single foothold between them what does that mean with our relationship with jesus christ We're supposed to be as close as we possibly can with Jesus Christ. That's the picture. Because look in verse 8 of chapter 3. So it split them up in in verse 7. They were ashamed in front of each other. And then verse 8. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife did what? Hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. This same principle of marriage is true in our relationship with Jesus Christ. If Satan's able to come in and insert sin into your life, when it's left undealt, your intimacy with Jesus Christ is gone. 
Husbands don't want to be vulnerable with their wives. Wives don't want to be vulnerable with their husbands when they're sin present. It's the same thing with God. Because you can't just sit down and, and read the Bible and pray to God and, and be open and genuine and vulnerable with it when there's sin in your life. You know you're lying. And that conviction sets in. And then you end up just going through the motions. That's not real. That's why we always got to remember letter A, the, it's a relationship, not a religion. And also, letter C, we need to remember that God is not some emotionless figurehead. Somebody go to Proverbs 15.3. No, somebody go to Jeremiah 31.3. Ah, Haley, you already talked. I don't know if you did or not. All right. Let me know when you get there. So God is not some emotionless figure. Can I have a volunteer? You know what, Sam? You can be a volunteer. Come up here. I'll have a volunteer. And then in Deuteronomy 32, we're not going to turn there, but it says that Israel forsook God and held him in low value compared to their idols and that it provoked God to jealousy. So again, God is not some emotionless being or higher power out there. He's actually... Somebody who thinks, who has emotions, who processes things. All right, read Proverbs 15.3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. So the eyes of the Lord, he's everywhere. He's watching, he's processing. There's another verse in Proverbs that says, or in Psalms, he ponders. It's almost like he's up in heaven watching us, watching what we're doing, wanting to be a part of what we're doing. And then who has Jeremiah 31.3? So God loved Jeremiah with an everlasting love, and he loves us with an everlasting love. And it says that he pursued him. God is pursuing you, lost or saved. If he's lost, he's pursuing that you get saved. If you're saved, he's pursuing that you'll give him everything, that you'll be vulnerable with him, that you'll allow him into every aspect of your life. So it looks a little like this. So, no, I want you to do whatever. (laughs) Sam, I want you to walk over and act like you know what you're doing with the drums. (laughs) And I'm going to be God. sit down Sam the picture I want you to see is wherever Sam went God is right there with him I know that's it's it's a stupid picture but when you really think when you're saved and and the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you practically that's how your life looks and sometimes I'll get to the end of the day and I'll I'll be like crap I didn't say a single thing to God and it's like I went through the motions and he was right there with me the whole time just watching convicting me of little things, tugging at my heart. And I didn't say a darn word to him all day. Sometimes it's been all week. Where's your heart at with God? Because he's right there. He's coming with you through whatever you're going through. And if Satan, and it goes back to our intimacy, if Satan can get a foothold in our intimacy with Jesus, 
It's only a matter, matter of time before we leave our first love. We don't let him in on what we're doing. Just like Sam, you know, rudely ignored me the whole time. So I was trying to see what he was doing. We don't talk about deep issues with him. We keep secrets from God. And when we're naked spiritually in front of him, when we are vulnerable, we're ashamed and we try to hide just like Adam and Eve. None of us like being vulnerable, especially when there's sin involved. We don't want to be exposed. Why do you think most sin takes place when it's dark out? We don't want, nobody wants to show it. We're wretched people. That's why it's hard for us sometimes to come to a point where we're spiritually naked in front of God, where we are completely open and vulnerable with Him. And we have those prayers of, God, I just need you to come in and change something about my life. I don't like who I'm becoming. It's hard to be honest. It's easy to say those things, but to really look in the mirror and and be like, man, I'm just a mess. And just be honest with God. It's not what you say. It's, It's your heart attitude towards Him. It's having that that intimate desire with him, being as close as you, po- as you possibly can to him. And then letter D, we need to understand, to bring God pleasure, he needs our heart. So flip over to back to Joshua chapter 5. So the nation of Israel, they had a great leader in Joshua who understood that they needed to be reminded of why they were here. Because they knew he knew their heads were going to get big because of all the fear that the nations around them had. In Joshua 5, so verse 1, he sees that they're getting recognition for all the victories that they're having. And then verse 2, it says, At that time, the Lord said unto Joshua, Make these sharp knives and circumcise again the children of Israel the second time. We're not going to read through the rest of that for time's sake. But Joshua realizes, look, to be as close as you possibly can with God, to be intimate, to be vulnerable with Him, you have to have a circumcision of the heart. Because circumcision back in the Old Testament, did that that save anybody? No, what was it a picture of? Flip back to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Verse 12, And now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee, but to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul. Now look over in verse 16. It says, Circumcise therefore, to live that life, to bring God pleasure in that way, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be no more stiff neck. So if you want to be close with God, if you want to bring pleasure to God, it's not about the outward actions. The outward actions are mere pictures of what needs to take place inside your heart. And I think of, there's a bunch of different ways you can think about it, but I think of our hearts as like an onion. You know, a bunch of layers. And our heart's hidden within all those layers. 
we got to circumcise. We've got to peel back all those layers of the onion. And I don't know what those layers are for you. It could be popularity. Whatever God's laying on your heart, success in sports or lust or a sin or something that you're putting above God, peeling back all those layers until you get to your heart. You're like, okay, God, it's yours. That's what God's after. That's when you can be intimate with God. Because when you try and bring all that baggage in your relationship with God, are you really being honest with Him? No. And do you think we're going to be able to fool God? No, He's going to see right through that. That's where I had to come to the realization, I'm like, quit wasting my time. Because I'm doing something, and this was back in high school when I really struggled with a lot of these things. I'm doing something that really has no impact. I'm trying to cultivate a relationship with God while bringing my sin along. Why? I was more miserable than if I just said, you know what, God, I'm going to do my own thing. And then I went and sinned, hit rock bottom, and I'm like, wow, God, I need you. Trying to do both at the same time, that's a nightmare. And I can guarantee you in a classroom this size that some of you guys are trying to do the same exact thing. Peel back the layers of your heart. Because, you know what, let's end here in 2 Corinthians 3. This, is, this one's too good. Because when you peel back the layers of your heart, when you give God the table of your heart, the unadulterated table, everything at once, and you say, God, it's yours. There's nothing holding covering it up there's nothing i'm putting above you over my heart you get first access and you get the whole thing this is what god's able to do verse three well verse two ye are our epistle written on our hearts known and read of all men for as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of christ ministered by us written not with ink but with the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. I almost think of it like this. God wants our heart, and it's almost like he's writing a love letter to us. He's writing our life right before our eyes on our heart. The heart's what's really going to determine what we do. And too often we let the things of this world encompass it and become that stuff that needs circumcised off, and it dictates what we do. It ultimately decides what direction we go. And God's like, get rid of that stuff. Let me have first access into your heart. Let me write what I want to. Let me write the story of your life. Because it will work out far better. We're going through biblical relationships on Wednesday nights. And one of the biggest things is, you know, who are you giving your heart away to? Brandy and I were talking about this last week. Just some of the decisions, the past mistakes... You know, when you give your heart out to somebody, it comes back damaged. You never get that piece back. Your heart is so valuable. If you give your whole heart over to God, I'm telling you, he'll, he'll magnify it. He'll make it that much better. The decisions that you make, they'll become clear. The purpose, because bringing it all back full circle, what's the main reason we're here? It's to bring God pleasure. We wouldn't exist. None of this would exist without God. Sometimes we build it up in our minds that we're more than what God has called us to do, or we're less, whatever you struggle with. Don't overcomplicate what God's called you to do. 
Allowing God to have free reign in our hearts by removing the agendas and desires that occupy our life is not only one of the greatest acts of faith and humility, but it also draws you closer to God than you ever thought possible. Some of you got to come to the realization that you want that. It's a decision all of us have to make. And once you get saved, it's a daily decision. How close am I going to be to God today? How much of my life am I going to allow him to come into to impact? How vulnerable am I going to be with God? And If you're not able to be vulnerable with God, deal with it. Because in closing, the more vulnerable you are with God, the more impact your relationship with Him will have. Just like that little corny graph up at the top right. The more vulnerable you are, the more you allow Him to control you, the more impact your life is going to have in this world. So what's stopping you? What are those layers that that you have covering up your heart, that you're not allowing God to come in and take control of it. Deal with those. Peel them back. Be completely vulnerable and open before God. Even if they're sinning in your life, be open with them about it. Because it's a relationship. It's not a religion. He actually does care, and he wants to help you. He wants to give you the, the right advice, if you will. Take full control of your life. All right, let's pray. Thank you.